Welcome to the Uncommon Knowledge Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Rachel. And this week we're joined by Dr. Helen Slaney. Helen is doing a British Academy postdoc at St. Hilda's College in Oxford, and she's writing a book on the reception of ancient material culture in the late 18th century. Her book will be called The Materials of Classical Antiquity from 1750 to 1820. And she's here today to talk to us about Emma Hamilton. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So tell us, who was Emma Hamilton? Emma Hamilton was an absolutely extraordinary woman. Uh, she was married to Sir William Hamilton, uh, who was the British envoy uh, to Naples or to the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies in South Italy. Uh, and he was envoy for quite a long time from the 1760s through to the 1790s. Uh, and he left during the French invasion. And Emma was his second wife. And so she spent about a decade in Naples, in this region, being immersed in this classical culture, this rediscovery of ancient material culture. Uh, so this is the time when Pompeii is first being excavated. This is the time when Herculaneum is first being excavated. Uh, there are all these antiquities coming to light from tombs around the region. Uh, and Sir William is most famous for his extensive Greek vase collection, uh, which largely came out of these tombs that were being excavated. Uh, and Emma had quite, uh, what I think is a really fascinating way of responding to this vase collection, and she invented this dance form, uh, which is known as the Attitudes, or the Grecian Attitudes. And these are a form of tableau vivant. Um, so there were solo performances, and she would represent figures from the vases or from other episodes in classical mythology. And it was a kind of parlour game. People had to guess who is the character that Emma Hamilton is representing now. And she would be this living sculpture, this living statue. And she developed these. They became incredibly popular and she became a bit of a tourist attraction on the Bay of Naples. So if you were visiting on the Grand Tour, you came to Naples. Uh, you had to see, you had to go up Mount Vesuvius, which was currently erupting at the time. <laughs> um, you had to go and see all these local sites like uh, Baiae and the tomb, so-called Tomb of Virgil. And, and you had to go and see Emma Hamilton performing <laughs> these dance pieces. Uh, and she took them to England later on in, in life. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really interested, what I'm researching, what I'm really interested in is the development of this art form, the development of the attitudes. And how do we know that Emma Hamilton was responsible for coming up with them, because obviously it was a big interest of her husband's as well. Yes, and this is also something that I want to uh, push against, is that most of the scholarship on the topic will credit Sir William with inventing this dance form, that he is this Pygmalion figure. This is the paradigm that's used to describe their relationship, that he was the craftsman uh, because he has all this expertise, because he knows about Greek vases, uh, he must have been responsible also for crafting Emma, for shaping Emma as a kind of passive material, as if she was being sculpted by her husband into being a dancer. Uh, and this is either explicitly stated by, by most scholars who've worked on this or kind of tacitly assumed. But I don't think that this is the case. Uh, and for a number of reasons, one of which, I mean, one of which is that actually performing these is quite skilled. Uh, this is not something that you can just do automatically. Uh, and despite Sir William Hamilton's many talents, um, he's not 
otherwise recognized as a maitre de danse. He's not a choreographer. Uh, Emma, on the other hand, did have a theatrical background and she was most famous in, in London as being uh, the, as sitting as a model for painter George Romney. Uh, and she mostly modelled classical figures. So she didn't sit in proprio persona, she didn't sit as herself. Um, she sat as, she was Cassandra, she was Medea, she was uh, Ariadne, she was a back and she, she had all these classical personae uh, that she represented for Romney. So she'd learnt from Romney, the, the portraitist, the, the history painter, how to how to perform, how to represent these figures in such a way as they would be instantly recognisable, which is precisely what she was doing in this parlour game of the attitudes or this performance art of the attitudes. Uh, a really interesting transitional phase, I think, can be identified in an anecdote which is told by uh, the German author Goethe, who visited the Hamiltons very early on. So. Emma arrived in uh, 1786 in Naples and Goethe visited the Hamiltons in spring of 1787. Uh, so it was just after she'd arrived, so she hadn't had a great deal of time to develop the attitudes at this point. And what Goethe says is that uh, he was taken into Sir William's uh, back room, Sir William's kind of junk store, um, where he kept all the stuff that he wasn't, you know, bits of his collection that he wasn't really using. And one of the things they found in this junk store was a big gold frame, like a picture frame, large enough to accommodate a person. And Goethe said, what's this big gold frame? And he was told, well, Emma's attitudes used to be performed in this frame. So she used to be a living painting. And Sir William already owned a lot of paintings of Emma in various <laughs> guises, which he'd either commissioned from Romney or purchased. So it makes sense that upon arrival, the first thing that he asked her to do was, do you think you could recreate some of your best poses? I've got this special frame for you. Um, would you like to pose in this frame? And she did that for a while, and then the frame was too cumbersome, and so she moved out of this, this, this gilded frame and made it a three-dimensional art form. But the expertise in terms of creating the figures... Uh, and the movements which led from one figure to another in a seamless sequence, that expertise was Emma's. So Sir William has one kind of expertise, but Emma brings another. And I think this is a direct instance of classical reception rather than one which is mediated by the creative activity of Sir William. How do we know what these dances actually look like? We've got some verbal descriptions. So this is something which is uh, quite key to my research is how impossible it is to talk about dance or to write about dance or to translate this medium of movement into any other kind of representation. So we've got verbal descriptions of Emma from people who saw her dancing. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm referring to the attitudes as dancing, even though technically they were, fr they were frozen. Uh, they're a bit of a montage going from one pose, one figure to another. But altogether, these seem to have been sequences which were danced. And I think you can make an argument as well for stillness still being a kind of dance. It's still a physical engagement, uh, even though these poses are, are still static. So to go back to the question of sources, uh, the other big resource that we have are some images of Emma dancing, which were produced by a couple of artists uh, who came and stayed with the Hamiltons 
in Naples and saw the attitudes being performed. Uh, one chap named Novelli and another guy called Rayburg. Uh, and both of them produced these, these, these sequences, uh, which again are scattered images of Emma in various uh, characters, uh, various personae that she's representing. Uh, and some of them are identified and some of them are, are not. Some of them seem to be fairly generic poses, but these are really useful, uh, particularly for seeing uh, how she's making use of the vase collection. Did she use specific vases and imitate the poses directly or was she more adopting a style from them? She's more adopting a style. So I've been through and compared the Novelli and the Rayburg sketches uh, to the plates in the catalogues of Sir William's vase collection. Both the, 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 so there's an earlier catalogue which is from before Emma arrived, but there's also a contemporary catalogue that was made in the 1790s. So I've compared both uh, and there are resemblances in some of the minor details. So the way that she's posed sitting on a chair with this kind of S-shaped twist to the spine and her head looking over her shoulder. This is a really common pose that comes up in a lot of these vase paintings. Uh, the, the, the way that she uses her garments is another really important aspect. So was she copying those from the vases? The... Yes, and also some pictures of dancers in motion on the vases. But she seems to have really adapted them. And something which, from to judge from the Novelli and the Rayburg images, something which she adds is... A narrative. So often on the vases the figures will be in what might be called an emotionally neutral pose and Emma will take these poses and transpose them into some kind of scenario. Uh, so for example you'll sometimes get uh, a woman leaning on, a, leaning on a, a pilaster, leaning on a column with a vase beside her and Emma will transform this into a highly emotive pose which is labelled as something like Electra with the urn containing her brother's, or supposedly containing her brother's ashes, uh, or Sophonisba, who is this queen of Carthage who drank poison as an act of defiance uh, to in, in, an invading uh, army. And she, so she takes these, these poses from the vases, but then she invests them with this performativity uh, and with this, this narrative. Uh, which is another reason why I think that it's her rather than Sir William who's responsible for creating the performances. And one contemporary observer uh, said, said, said of Emma that uh, she imitates the vases but, but not slavishly. Uh, she puts together different elements and she comes up with these completely original performances. And I think that looking at the pictures by Novelli and Rayburg and comparing them to the catalogue, I think that's absolutely accurate. Uh, there is a bit of a caveat in that it's possible that Novelli and Rayburg were both drawing largely from the catalogues rather than from Emma's performances. Uh, there's this possibility that the artworks are communicating one to the other without the intervention of Emma in between. But I do think it's likely that the, these are the way this is the way that the images worked, this is the way that the translation worked, that they are observing Emma in action, and it would be surprising if they then went away 
and drew something completely different from the type of poses that they were seeing. Uh, something, according to Novelli, that Emma seems to do quite frequently is to recline, is to lie down, and this is also attested in some of the verbal accounts, some of the written accounts that we've got. And this is something that people on Greek vases don't do very often. You only lie down on a Greek vase if you're at a symposium or if you're dead. <laughs> uh, but Emma lies down because she's emotional. So she throws herself on the ground and she embraces these urns. Uh, and again, the, there's this pose which is Agrippina grieving over the urn of Germanicus, uh, containing the, the ashes of her husband. And so there's a sequence that Novelli illustrates where she goes from being Agrippina grieving with this urn of ashes to being a drunken bacchant to the urn is rolling away from across the ground and it's got away from her and she's a little bit tipsy. But she's still reclining. And you can see in the in the images how just these subtle variations uh, in Emma's posture and also her use of these physical objects of the vases in her performances uh, is illustrating these these different ideas. Was she much copied? Did any once the the vases were published did people take it up? And... She became quite fashionable. So there was a bit of a craze. Uh, in the 1790s and in the early 19th century, particularly among women, uh, for playing this kind of parlour game, it tended to be amateur. It tended to be something that you do in the privacy of your own drawing room for your family and friends. Uh, there were a couple of public artists who also exhibited the attitudes. Uh, there's a woman called Henrietta Hendel Schutz, who seems to have evolved them more or less independently of Emma, but she was performing them in public, uh, although her tableaus tended more towards the religious than the, um, than the pagan classical. Uh, but it didn't really take off professionally until the more debased form, which came into the Victorian music halls where you get uh, the nude women posing as so-called Greek statues, and it's okay if they don't speak. Um, they're allowed to be nude, and it's okay if they're if because they're classical. Um, this this gives them this veneer of culture. So that's where the attitudes end up in the nineteenth century, or well, that's the form that they that they come to take. Was music ever incorporated into Emma Hamilton's dances? It doesn't seem so, and this is where she departs from the ancient art form on which these are based. So ancient Roman Greco-Roman pantomime, uh, because that did have a text running alongside that did have musical accompaniment, uh, but Emma's seems to have been entirely visual. Um, there, were, there were a couple of imitators around at the time who were using text and music, uh, so it's certainly possible for it to evolve into that, that to evolve that kind of dimension. But for Emma herself, it was all about the focus on the, the statuesque. Like. Was the reception of it at the time largely positive or were there scholars who didn't like the attitudes? Reception was mixed. Uh, so people tended to rave about the attitudes. We've seen, you know, classical antiquity brought to life. We've seen these these figures come off the vases. We've, we've seen these uh, recreations. This is what antiquity must have been like. It's amazing to see this, this living statue. Uh, but Emma herself was subject to a lot of snobbish criticism. 
because she came from working class background, I mean, her story is an amazing rags to riches or rags to riches to rags story, really. Uh, but she wasn't a member by birth of the class into which she'd married. Um, so she, there tended to be a lot of pointing out the discrepancy between these classical nymphs and these high culture figures which she was imitating and then the woman herself who spoke in this vulgar accent and who said all the wrong things at dinner. Um, and she was, yeah, so she was a bit reviled for not being in person what people expected when they seen her performances. Was she mostly, uh, were, was her audience mostly English people in Italy or did she also have an Italian uh, audience? Mainly visitors to Italy, so not just English, but French and German okay. as well. So if you if you were travelling on the Grand Tour, so Northern Europeans, mm-hmm. uh, so it's a cosmopolitan audience that she's playing to. And some of her imitators took off, particularly in France. Um, actually, one, one line of reception that comes out of it is her costume. Uh, so th- this is not this is an argument that other people have been responsible for making, so I can't claim it, but I think it's really interesting, um, is that the, co- the, the Grecian costume that she wore, so these long flowing white robes, this flowing white dress, uh, no corset, that's very important, so there's this liberation of her body from these tight uh, fashions that had preceded uh, that was restricted before Emma to representation in art. So this is what you wear if you're posing for a classical painting. Uh, Emma then brings it out into the drawing room and makes it acceptable dress. So even after she'd finished performing, she's still wearing this flowing Grecian robe and no corset. And she's you know going out to dinner and going to parties just wearing this, this dress. And this is the fashion which then took off in revolution, post-revolutionary France. So this is Directoire style. This, this white dress, and this is the garments that you will have seen in Regency fashion uh, going into the early 19th century. So she had quite an impact on women's fashion, actually, maybe more so than through performance. So what do you think made her want to do it? Why was she drawn to these vases and why did she respond to them in this very particular way? That's a really difficult question to answer because we don't have anything in Emma's own words to to tell us about her responses. She says very little. We've got some letters from her, but nothing about the her creative process. And I think it must have been to do with... The, the, the catalyst is to do with this sudden immersion in ancient material culture, which she encountered when she arrived in Naples. She'd seen nothing like this. I mean, growing up in... London and being working class and she had some exposure through Romney and sitting for these paintings but nothing like and and actually nobody really in Britain at the time had the kind of exposure to ancient Greek pots to ancient Greek sculpture that we take for granted now because there are so many images available Uh, and suddenly having this resource available to her it seems like a, a logical response to say how can I perform with this she loved performing and she had she worked for a theatrical family and she had connections to Drury Lane and so she was uh she she had singing lessons and dancing lessons and it seems that this this is quite a logical progression for her to make to decide that she wants to embody these figures on the vases that's how she responds to them that embodiment she's not a collector she doesn't have she did take an interest so there are an, there are some engravings of her 
with Sir William at the opening of Tombs, and she's holding one of the pots. And of course, this is a stylization of how it might have actually been. But the fact that she's depicted in this in this role, uh, this this quasi antiquarian role, seems to suggest that she is taking an interest. Uh, but the way that her interest manifests, it can't manifest as being a collector in her own right, but it can manifest as having this very physical relationship to the works of art, to the to the material objects. So both by imitating the figures which are on the pots and then establishing uh, this sensory kinetic relationship to the people that they depict from antiquity, uh, and also utilising the pots as pots in her performances. Uh, and actually there's a, there's a lovely anecdote which does indicate that she was using the pots, um, where she's lying down in the pose of a water nymph and she turns around and she says to Sir William, um, don't, don't worry, Sir William, I'm not going to break your jug. <laughs> um, so she's obviously using genuine antiquities in her performances. And not surprisingly, Sir William gets a bit, is getting a bit twitchy about that she's lying down, embracing them and letting them roll across the floor and putting them on pedestals and, and whatever. Uh, but this does seem like a, a legitimate... Um, and quite interesting response to suddenly being surrounded by this this wealth of resources. Yeah. It's such an interesting way of receiving it when you compare it to the way we see pots in you know, behind glass cases in museums and sometimes I just walk past them because it's just, you know, a whole case full of pots. But mm. the idea of the physicality of her relationship to them just seems really interesting. And something I got a little a little bit obsessed with as a sideline was the rep the number of representations there are on Greek vases of people handling vases. So it's this, <laughs> this meta vase thing going on where you see there are loads of depictions of say uh, Mayanads having a drinking party and they're all holding amphorae or they're holding calyxes or they've all got these these pots. And there, there are certain genres where they come up over and over again. So on. Uh, on water vessels, you get pictures of water vessels. So it's almost indicating how the pot is meant to be used uh, on the side of the pot itself. And Emma seems to have picked up on that and actually <laughs> followed through. Uh, so it's really this this referential um, circle. It's interesting that she didn't. It doesn't seem to have sort of played around with the colouring that you get from the vases, being dressed all in white. And, and where does that come from? So this comes from sculpture. So another thing that she's doing is she is fusing other ancient art forms with the figures on the on the pots. Uh, so she's using sculpture. I think she's, she might also be basing some of her movements on frescoes, which are being unearthed at Pompeii and Herculaneum. Uh, but certainly the, the white drapery was absolutely integral to how you represent classical figures at this time, because there was this idea that all the sculptures were white marble. There was a lot of people were very theoretically invested in this idea of the, the pristine whiteness of classical antiquity. Uh, so if you wanted to show uh, yeah, a, a, a woman from ancient artwork, you would be looking towards sculptural representations, I think, as well. So she's referencing those in her garments. Kind of doing two different media at the same time, in absolutely, a way. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So how difficult was it for audiences to guess which classical classical figure was being represented. Did uh, Medea have a child with her that she was killing? Or um... They seem to have 
done it fairly easily from the anecdotes that we've got it seems to have been fairly readily identifiable and i think that that's a real skill right to know the iconicity so well that you just you know how to put your own body into that pose instantly so that people go oh i know who that is right uh and there's, there's there is one story where people are yelling hey it's medea hey it's niobe oh, and she with with medea she actually made a human prop out of one of the children in the audience. Um, and actually one of the Rayburg illustrations shows this, shows her carrying this child under her arm. Um, it's this supposedly dead child with her arms like, dragging on the ground. And uh, the, the child herself, Adele de Bois, writes about this in uh, much, much later um, in, in retrospect and says, oh, there was this incident when Emma Hamilton just scooped me up out of the audience and made me into... And I, and I was so shocked because she, she drew a knife on me. And everybody yelled, hey, it's Medea! Uh, so and no, no forewarning that this no, is going to happen. Not, this is entirely unpremeditated. <laughs> Uses someone else's child in this attitude. Um, and then she transformed it almost instantly into Niobe, who, uh, who loses all her children. She's a bereaved mother. And suddenly you've got the Medea figure and the Niobe figure in proximity. And I think that, and that makes those two stories speak to each other. And suddenly you get Niobe's grief is part of Medea and also Medea's responsibility is part of Niobe. Medea's guilt is part of Niobe. So I think her choice of mm, scenarios is is quite informed as well that she knows ah oh, this will be an effective switch to make at this time um on the spot i know how to become niobe again possibly based on a particular sculpture like the niobe group in in florence uh but possibly not possibly it, it and from certainly from the rayberg illustration it's not identical to um to the to the the Fitzy one uh, so again she seems to have been combining different elements to make something recognisable, something legible, something that people can comprehend. So it relied on quite a bit of knowledge from her audience as well about these the icons and what these were well, the Greek myths and also how they would what the iconic moments of them are that you'd be able to mm, represent. Mm, mm. So I think she's generally performing to a highly educated audience. So the type of people that are going on the grand tour. Uh, usually the the cultural and economic elite um, and they're the ones who have been exposed to all this classical culture they're absolutely steeped in it and they've been in Italy for six months right they've just, they've just come down from Florence they've just been to the Uffizi they've just been to Rome they, they turn up in Naples they're immersed in all of this stuff so of course that's what they're going to see when they're presented with these figures so yes I think it does rely on preparation on the part of the audience the audience have to be literate in Emma's medium if you like before she presents it to them who were her other sort of greatest hits, apart from Medea and, and Niobe? Who else did she regularly? Well, she functions Cassandra, uh, the Bacchant. She's always painted as a Bacchant, and and uh, so that's sort of looking that's good fun. Wild, yeah, wild, a wild. Also, dancing, um, Muse of Dance is another one of her of her it's kind favorites. Of interesting um, to sort of portray a statuesque version of dance while incorporating that into a dance as well. It's sort of this this mixture mm. of motion and stillness and stillness representing motion. Um, and it may reflect the popularity of images of dancers on the vases. 
um, and also this frieze of dancers from Herculaneum. Uh, it was a, a fresco that was apparently one of Sir William's favourite works of art from Herculaneum, and one of the figures seems particularly modelled on one of these dancers, and they have these flying shawls as well. So she used scarves or shawls as part of her movement. She had the, the white drapery, but she also had these pieces of cloth which were very much integral to the way that she uh, both she so she she almost cover herself up in one and then do a quick change and then emerge with this cloth in some other kind of configuration that would be part of uh, um, part of the next character. Mm. I kind of want to play this game now. At the yeah, next party sort of like <laughs> classical charades. Yeah, we we we've been the other project I'm involved with, which is ancient dance and modern dances. We've played a variant of this this kind of party game <laughs> uh, where you, you guess the character and guess the emotion and then guess the uh, guess the movement. But yeah, I think it would be fun to play. Yeah. Although I guess you have to have that that literacy in that particular culture and that particular mm. visual culture mm. as well. Um, it's not just a question of having read the myths, but also knowing what the vases look like and how, how these people are, are represented. Yeah, um, and, and the kind of and typical contemporary representations as well. Mm -hmm. So she also performs, say, figures from Renaissance art. So she does. She doesn't just do classical. She does Renaissance great masters as well. Um, <laughs> she's a Renaissance woman. She's quite right? <laughs> <laughs> <got> versatile. <laughs> this has been so interesting, Helen. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about it. Thank you for having me on the blog. And you can find uh, pictures of the vases and of pictures of Emma Hamilton on our blog, which is uncommonknowledgeoxford.wordpress.com. Thanks for joining us.